tuia, tuia, hui, huia, hui, huia mai e ngai iwi, ki tātātou hui, haumie, hui e, tai This week on The Hui. Locked out of their land, Central North Island iwi collective Mokai Pātea are fighting to gain access to their whenua. It definitely is intergenerational and it is tiring. It's a big weight on your shoulders. The Chief Medical Officer for Te Akafaiora, Rawiri Jensen, joins us live in studio to discuss leadership, reforms and equity. Plus, we're in Rotorua with eco-warrior Kitty Danielle, who has turned her life around after falling on hard times. It was hard to get up sometimes in the morning, you know, you just go to sleep crying and wake up crying. Ko ngā wea wea o te rangi, kia rātou mā, ko ngā wea wea o te whenua, kia tātou katoa, te hewa maureora, kia tātou katoa, and welcome back to the hui. They've been called landless people, but that's not for a lack of whenua. The four iwi of Mōkai Pātea have retained over 17,000 hectares of land, roughly three times the size of Lake Taupo, but all of it inaccessible by car or foot. Now, in the midst of treaty negotiations, the Crown is being challenged to right its wrongs so the people of Mōkai Pātea can freely enjoy their land like any other landowner in Aotearoa. Kei Amiriana Johnson, Tēnei Remote, rugged and unreachable. It's a place where you couldn't go but you heard about it all the time, and it was sort of like that out of reach place. Owners don't even know where this whenua is, and probably don't even realise that they're owners. Would you not fight so that your mukos, your next generation, can finally get to their land? Would you not fight for that? Imagine still holding on to thousands of hectares of your whenua Māori, but you can't get there. It's been the struggle for over a century for the Central North Island people of Mōkai Pātea. Here in Taihape are the headquarters for the iwi collective of Mōkai Pātea. Oh, kia ora. Good to see you. Moira Rokawa Haskell and Barbara Ball are the toughest nails aunties working to advance their people. And this is our tūpuna, so that shows you where we come from in terms of tamati, pōkai, whenua. This is Mō Whango Marae of Ngāti Fiti Kaupeka, one of the four iwi of Mōkai Pātea. There's also Ngāti Tamakōpiri, Ngāti Hauiti and Ngāti Ohuake. Alongside them is treaty negotiator Richard Steedman. This really started in my great-great-grandfather's time. You know, it consumed his whole life. It's also consumed Richard's life, battling for access to landlocked whenua. It definitely is intergenerational. And it is tiring. It's a big weight on your shoulders. In the late 1800s, the Crown forced collectively owned Māori land to be broken up into individual titles. The whenua closest to the road was sold or leased. The inland whenua cut off. Not only did the people of Mōkai Pātea lose their connection to their land, they also lost their cultural identity. 
Some in the rohe even refer to them as an invisible people. And that's a label that still hurts to this day. Well, I certainly feel the pain and the sorrow, the sadness of not being able to access the whenua. Some land was eventually handed back by the Crown in the 70s, but still no access. The problem for the people of Mōkai Pātea is to get to their whenua, they have to go through someone else's. Not only do they have to cross through large, privately owned high country stations, there's dock and defence land in the way too. So if an iwi member wants to just set foot on the whenua, they have to plead their case. With no way in and no way out. Often we'd go in at night undercover so that nobody would see us going through the farms. In those days, it was certainly no joke. We've got nearly 19 kilometres to go through their farm and their hunting areas to get to ours. The choppers are well over $2,000 per hour. But this is the way we're going to have to do it in the meantime. So if you can't go through, you have to go over. It's only from the air that you can see just how vast and rugged it is. Thousands of hectares of untapped land, full of potential. For Moira, this trip has been a long time coming. How was it seeing your... Oh, it was amazing. It was, yeah, and I'm glad I was sitting in the front, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. sort of sure brought a little tear to my eyes. <laughs> This is Moira's first time on her land. What's particularly special about this block for you? Oh, because my mum comes from my mum, so you know. So it's just a place where you couldn't go, mm. but you heard about it all the time, and it was sort of like that out of reach place. How has that experience changed you? It sort of moved me, really, because my mother gave me that land. It was quite heart-wrenching, really. I really did enjoy the ride home, just looking at all the land that belongs to us. But sad that our people can't get in there unless they um, get helicoptered on. Even if they could get permission to put in a road, it's been quoted as tens of millions. I would say, so what? It's been 168 years that we have not been able to get into our land. We could have been producing lots of things in there. We could have been making our own money, but we haven't been able to get in there to be able to do anything in terms of, of the economy. So 66 million? compared to never being able to get into your land? Well, I don't know really what to say. I know what to say, but I can't say it. Why so, is that? Well, you're not allowed to swear on camera. <laughs> They're pinning all their hopes on the treaty negotiations. The biggest thing that has hindered us is that we're on to our third chief crown negotiator in two years. Wow. So it's like you've got to repeat your story over and over and over and over again. 
If this fails, their only other option is the Māori Land Court. But that's not straightforward either. In my experience, the, the time frames in the Māori Land Court um, can absolutely mean that people feel like it's a too hard basket. Lawyer Kaile Katipo has worked 17 years in Māori land law. Are there uh, other barriers for these landowners trying to get access? Yeah, so the biggest barrier is the actual funding. Landowners need to be able to engage experts, uh, surveyors, valuers, engineers sometimes, to provide evidence of what it's going to take to get access through. So the Māori landowners would usually be expected to foot that bill, which of course you're talking about large sums of money. And of course we don't have the money to even contemplate those costs. The four iwi have big dreams for their land. They already run a successful manuka honey operation despite the challenges. But they are also keen to run conservation wānanga with rangatahi and there's even talk of a luxury lodge for the kaumātua. It's not all about economic development. It's about our own spiritual oranga. And that's part of it, is enjoying your whenua, enjoying the places of your tūpuna, of your ancestors, and understanding what they did there and the beautiful stories. But he's realistic about a resolution. I can't see that I'm going to be alive by the time we get to the solution that we should have. It's just moving so slow. What keeps you going then if you don't think you're going to see the finish line? Yeah, well, of course, um, you know, my, my children and my mokopunas that would like to enjoy it more. So that's, oh, we just have to keep going. The perfect access solution is that the owners of our whenua are able to enjoy that whenua just like any other Kiwi, New Zealander, would totally expect. Now, the claimants say Valley Land that's part of the family-owned Ngā Mātea station is the most suitable for a road. However, the Apatū whānau who own it say a road is not feasible. Treaty Negotiations and Defence Minister Andrew Little says the Crown will continue to work with Iwi to restore their rights wherever possible. And he expects Crown agencies will consider requests for Māori to access their whenua in good faith. Now, that was Mariana Johnson there with her first story for the hui. E hārake nei i tātātou hui e tiwi, Māori Health Authority Chief Medical Officer Tākuta Rawiri McCree Jensen joins us. Me ngā mahi whakapiki ora ki ngā iwi Māori o te motu. From the extreme weather events and impacts on whānau to COVID-19 and what's predicted to be a, quote, bumper flu season, Te Aka the still fairly new Māori Health Authority, will have its work cut out to support whānau Māori. The Chief Medical Officer for Te Aka Dr Rawiri Makri Jensen, joins me now. E te taku te tēnā koe. Kia ora. No mai ra ki te hui. 
the rate of COVID infections remains fairly consistent, right, with about 1,600 daily cases, new daily cases. How much of an ongoing concern is that for you, for Te Ako given the ongoing vulnerabilities within Māori communities? Yeah, it's pretty clear that COVID hasn't finished with us. Um, we're really interested in supporting uh, Māori whānau, protecting whānau, saving Māori lives. Right now, that means we have to carry on with the things that we've got in play. So masks are really important. Uh, vaccine boosters are really important. And the new bivalent boosters coming out soon. Um, isolation requirements, really important ways of looking after whānau and protecting Māori communities. So we're keen to support those things. Um, Te Akawhaiora has done quite a bit of work in supporting Māori providers. I'd noticed, and I think everybody in the country has noticed, Māori providers have done a great job throughout COVID. Mm. From the times of testing, right through the vaccination programmes, supporting whānau to be able to isolate safely. You know, Māori providers have been courageous, they've been committed and just done an incredible job. But there has been an, uh, a severe impact on the workforce. So what advice is Te Akawhaiora giving to the government to be able to boost the defences boost the work that they are doing and what's the response from the government been to that advice? So one of the really good things about Te Akawhaiora as the independent Māori health um, independent statutory entity is that the board has made some commitments to support Māori providers. So in the announcements in November last year I think $72 million was announced. $13 million of that goes towards Māori providers acknowledging historic underfunding, you know, the stuff that came up in the tribunal. And so we've got a board that's made commitments to Māori providers to help them get through. Invest in Māori providers is a really important way of supporting Māori communities. OK, and of course we talked about the bumper flu season that I mentioned earlier. So given that and COVID and other issues that they are dealing with at the moment, what's your view, how would you characterise the situation for our providers who are going to be overloaded with a lot of work as we approach winter? Yeah, so I think we want to be um, supporting Māori providers to carry on doing a great job. Uh, and to that end, I think we want to support Māori communities to be well advised about the um, bivalent COVID vaccine booster that's available. Mm. The flu vaccination, really important. This year we've advocated and we've achieved it with Pharmac to say more people get access to the flu vaccination. Zero, uh, six-month-old babies all the way through to 12 years. All hapumama, all Māori over the age of 55 are all eligible. Anybody with an underlying health condition eligible for the flu vaccination. Mm. And when whānau go in, I think the message is make sure you get all of the vaccinations you're entitled to. Make sure that you get access to pertussis vaccination, protect our babies. Um, I think all of those things are part of being well prepared to get through what is going to be a bumper flu season. OK, how do you do that in the communities and areas that were vastly impacted by the extreme weather events? We know what they are, you know, Te Taitokarau, Hauraki Waikato, Ngāti Kaunguru, Te Taitawhiti. What will you do there to ensure that that communication is retained and maintained, particularly with whānau who, has be, who have been uh, disattached, who have been yeah. taken away from their homes? Yeah. So, uh, two parts. I think, number one, Te Akawhaiora stood up quickly and said, let's support Māori providers in those settings. I took time to go down to the East Coast and support the providers down there. I went to Matau Maui, to Wairoa, to support providers there. And part of it is that we brought in teams that could help take some of the load off mm. the providers there. I think we can also notice that uh, Māori providers across the nation came together to support Māori providers. And so we saw that during Cyclone Hail with the Auckland Māori providers, you know, sending support up to Northland, um, food packs, but also um, first aid packs and hygiene, sanitation stuff. So I think that's a feature that we want to see and, and Te Akawhaiora has been really good about stepping forward and funding uh, some of that. 
the second part is more about the long-term impact. So Wairua is a good example. In fact, 9% of homes in Wairua were impacted, were stickered. Wow. That's an incredible, intensely um, impactful event for Wairua. And a, and a highly populated Māori community. Yeah, definitely. And so we are seeing so many whānau, um, you know, not able to be in their homes and all of the effort required for clean-up and so on. But notice also the mental wellness impacts on that. And we, I think we've learned from the earthquakes in Christchurch. So getting involved early and supporting whānau with good mental wellness services, that's another feature of the work that Te Akawhaiora is doing. Um, over time, we've got to make sure that we're looking after all those whānau who missed medicines or missed a, an appointment or missed a specialist event, you know, those sorts of things. And I think we just work through that in a really dedicated, deliberate way. What, what's the response that you have to people who will say, well, surely Te Whatawara can do that mahi as well? Why do we need a Māori health authority separate and independent, as you said, to be doing this mahi when we have a new health agency that should be doing that anyway as a part of the equitable outcomes for all New Zealand communities? Yeah, so I'd be critical, I think, and say, is it possible that mainstream services do it as well? Do they do it as well as Māori providers? And I think there's pretty good evidence that shows that Māori providers do a really good job of reaching into Māori communities and creating the support which is well received by that community. I think we've got an entitlement to have a system that works for us and understands us. And I think that's what we're starting to see in terms of Te Akawhaiora and our close relationship with all of those providers. And which was the basis of Y2575 anyway and the equitable outcomes that were being sought as a part of that claim. That was, of course, Tāguta Rawari McCree Jensen. After a quick break, coming up next on the Hui, an eco warrior who has dealt with her own tribulations to triumph through her mahi tiaki tayao. Environmentalist Kitty Danielle is a well-known face around Rotorua. Her ongoing passion for Papatuanuku has been the impetus for her most recent accomplishment. But life hasn't always dealt her a successful hand. D'Angelo Martin reports. Box. Hang. Kiri Danielle is a fierce eco-warrior. This place is called Waiotapu. It's sacred waters, and this is the desecration that's happening. She has dedicated her life to cleaning up the whenua and being an awesome mum to her three tamariki. So we had the perfect life. Yeah, it was wonderful. But in 2016, her perfect life fell apart. <laughs> It was hard to get up sometimes in the morning, you know? You just go to sleep crying and wake up crying. Kitty Danielle had everything, including a job she loved as a television presenter for the local oh, news. Team needs. We're going to go and check this one out now. But in 2016, she lost her marital home. My tamariki's papa and I had an agreement for the separation of marital property, and I wasn't prepared for what that would mean for me. Within a month, Kitty had also lost her job and kids. At the time, I was scared of the court system. 
I was overwhelmed by stories of others who'd gone through it and they'd had really emotionally debilitating experiences and it wasn't something I was brave enough to do or wanted to do really. Living from day to day without a home took its toll. It was not the easiest to come from having a kainga with my tamariki to not and to being away from them and being staying like couch surfing or staying with friends or whanau. So when your friends uh, weren't able to accommodate you, what then? I actually had to stay in my car and those, those were the hardest times. Holding on to my keys and my alarm just in case anyone like tried my car. Forestry roads, rest areas, public toilets. This wharepaku, what does this represent for you back in those times? What was the wharehorui? You know, it was a necessity and it was very helpful. It was luxury for me. You know, I'd take my soap and have a wash. Yeah, so I always kind of snuck in. Kiri's whānau didn't know how bad it really was. I didn't know she was living in a car. I knew she was battling. When I say I didn't realise that, I knew she was doing it hard. Kiri didn't want to burden her parents at the time. She was also whakamā. I felt I'd failed my family, my tamariki. I wasn't about to go and put my hand out to my parents again. Um, and I'm very lucky because I'm still, I can come on here and I'm surrounded by aroha. Without whānau to comfort Kitty, she leaned on the support of strangers on social media. It was heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. But at the same time, I didn't let myself sit in that too much. And there were many times when, you know, I was away from my tamariki here in Rotorua, I'm away from my whānau down, um, down south, and the ones I had with me right there in those moments were my Facebook whānau. After nearly two years without permanent accommodation, she had reached rock bottom, and it was a visit from her tamariki that changed everything. I was in Tokoroa, I was broken-hearted and I was on the ground crying um, next to some suitcases in my, my mattress bed and a friend had let me stay. And when my daughter saw me, she just burst into tears and she said, Mum, Mum, you're weak. You're weak, Mum. Why don't you go back to law school and get strong? I looked up at her and I could see my daughter was trying to parent me. And that was the low point. That was the moment where Kitty began to turn her life around and looked to the future. And within a week, I'd sent off the letter to go to law school. Because, yeah, and then there was no stopping me after that. Kitty spent the next five years working hard to rebuild her life. Now all of those things remind me why I should be the best lawyer I can be. I will never look at somebody walking with a mattress down the road or sitting outside a shop and go, ever. I'll go, got you, I know. Last year, Kitty graduated from law school and was admitted to the bar. 
There were two things I was there for. One was for me and my babies, and so that I could be stronger. The second was for Papatuanuku. And it was her love for Papatuanuku that led to another major step in her new career, becoming the first Māori Environmental Commissioner. I've been very privileged in the position that I've been given, and I don't see that as anything other than a responsibility in a legal sense. How laws are made, how some of them are created when they're in the bill stage, how they go through Parliament, how you can have a chance to influence those. It's the perfect role for her. And so that's what I always lead out with in terms of what I put into my mahi, is that it's got to come i te ngākau, i te tuatahi, mai te ngākau. And that means you work kore pūtea, which I do for the Commission. Oh yeah, it goes like this, my darling. Commissioner or not, Kitty continues to put the mahi in, cleaning up the whenua. Oh, right. You know, I, um, this was clean last time I was here. And it's so annoying. This time with a bit of help from her son, Kahutia. My mum's created a legacy. She's a strong, independent Māori woman. She went from homeless to a lawyer. She was a single mother. I just want to make sure that I continue her legacy. For Kahu, this is the mahi that matters. Well, watching my mum pick up all this rubbish like she is right now, it's inspiring. So when the time comes that I'm a, a man and I've got my own family, I'll instill upon these values, you know, clean up all this stuff, take care of our land, take care of where we live. You know, I'm incredibly proud of my mother. Kitty will continue to do everything she can to make a change. And I will use the law to help me do that. And I will use my puppies to help me do that in the real world, you know? Like, there's two different worlds. You get out and pick up the nappies and pick up the paru, and then also fight against the inability of the current legal system to honour her correctly. Mā ona ringa raupā ka tutuki pai ai te wero mō te oranga tonutanga o papatuānuku te take. Hey, te wiki, e tū mai nei, he tū hāhā tangata Māori te ihoiho, coming up on The Hui. They're the Rotorua Rangatahi, building their own media empire. We're trying to lead our Māori people into a new space of digitising and owning our own content. Three, two, one, running out now. Local Gecko Productions is on air and going out live to the world. Our team have developed really quickly because we sit in a space of arikitanga. We sit in a space of trying to achieve the best that we can achieve. And to see them kind of flourish and explore media, explore the internet, social media and all of that, it's amazing. The sky's the limit for any of these rangatahi. Next week on The Hood. That's us for this week on The Hui. You'll find links to our stories on our Facebook and Twitter accounts or at newshub.co.nz. Kia mau ki te tūranga o taputopu a te ahaumie hui e taiki e.
nā te puna whakatonga rewa, te hui i tautoko.